This is Diet of Brussels, and it's the morning after the meaningful vote, version one. Uh, what have we learnt? Well, uh, we've learnt that I need my sleep, uh, and we're quite grateful when votes happen earlier than uh, expected. We've also learnt, uh, I've learnt, that I really should stop making predictions about votes, because uh, I'm not very good at it. Uh, this was well beyond... Uh, the defeat, the scale of defeat that I thought we would have. You know, I was thinking maybe uh, some MPs might abstain rather than vote against uh, their government, but in practice, everyone voted against who could. Uh, and it's really important to stress that that majority of 230 against uh, the government uh, basically means that uh, all but 40 of the Tory backbench. Uh, who, so people who aren't on the government payroll, voted against uh, the deal. So we had 113 uh, Tory MPs voting against it. So an absolute slating of the the deal uh, of Theresa May and a really crucial blow to her position uh, on uh, this text, which I think is going to cause uh, a lot of difficulty uh, in all of this. Uh, it's important not to, to underplay the the scale of this defeat, uh, which I think makes it uh, more complicated, and I'm going to come back to uh, next steps uh, as we go through this uh, kind of process. Interestingly, from uh, the vote, I think what we can take uh, from this is that there was quite a lot of discipline on the uh, opposition ranks. That there were uh, only a small number of uh, Labour rebels who voted against, I think only three, uh, and that uh, there seems to be a lot of there's a lot of determination to get this to the vote, uh, a lot of dropping of uh, amendments, uh, efforts to move this on quickly just so that they could uh, know where they were and try and provide a clear-cut uh, response on that. And uh, that kind of defeat I would take as a, a pretty clear-cut uh, condemnation by the House of this um, text. Which, of course, raises the question, uh, why is Theresa May still Prime Minister? Why hasn't she resigned? You know, this is her flagship policy. This is, in some ways, her only policy. Uh, and yet, uh, she clearly doesn't have the confidence of the House uh, on this matter. So, uh, why did she... Uh, not simply accept that there was a need for today's motion of no confidence, uh, which has been tabled by Labour. Uh, why don't you just say, you don't like this, you therefore don't like me, and I'm off and to do something different? Uh, well, uh, two reasons. One, it's not really her style. We've talked about uh, the grit and determination of Theresa May uh, many times. Uh, and she's not, uh, she's not a quitter. She's a fighter, to use the old Mandelson expression. Uh, but uh, I think also, more importantly, uh, it's because Theresa May doesn't think that she has uh, lost uh, her opportunity to sell this deal to Parliament and to the country. Now, how, how do we explain that, you know, uh, uh, given the scale of last night's defeat? Well, uh, as much as there is not a majority in Parliament for this deal... The calculation in number 10 is that there is a ma no majority for any of the options that is present on the table. And so you might understand what uh, May offered last night, 
which we'll talk about in a second, in the broader context of their strategy for ratification, which is to get this down to a situation of my deal or no deal. And that, that will be the two options that are on the table. So if you think about uh, the uh, Tory leadership uh, uh, confidence motion before Christmas that knocked that one out of uh, contention for the time being, uh, we presumably will see today uh, a victory for the government in uh, the confidence motion because as much as a Tory and DUP uh, MPs don't like this deal uh, and are very happy to go and vote against it, uh, they also rather like being in government. So uh, they're happy, and they've both, both groups, EIG and uh, DUP, have already said that they are going to vote in support of the government. So you have to imagine that they will be successful uh, on that front. So we knock out that for the time being, uh, and certainly Labour don't seem to have any great confidence in their chances uh, on this. And then we move into the next stage of what Theresa May offered. So yesterday she said that, as well as making time for uh, the confidence motion today, uh, assuming that the government was able to survive that, then she would uh, uh, go with the government out to uh, different parts of Parliament and uh, invite views on what would be necessary to get a majority. And then she would take that in a constructive spirit to the EU and see what could be negotiated. Now, uh, if you were naive, uh, you might say, oh look, Theresa May has changed her tune. After all those uh, long and bitter battles against Parliament, she's finally coming round to it. You know, sure, she you know, fought legal uh, battles against giving Parliament a role in uh, notification back in the Gina Miller case. Sure, she really doesn't like giving Parliament anything uh, to do here. She's she's changed her tune. She's, she's seen the light and everything's going to be fine. That's not what this is about. What this is about is about demonstrating to Parliament that as much as it's unhappy, it's not unhappy in a particular direction and certainly not unhappy in one direction enough that it can build a majority uh, around an alternative policy. Let's think a little bit about what, uh, how this might work. If you, want to, if you want to overturn, if you want to move a lot of MPs which you now clearly need to do, you've got really two options, uh, two pathways. There's one pathway which is about bringing Tories and the DUP back on side. There's another one which is about bringing opposition uh, uh, MPs uh, on side and bringing them around. So for bringing Tories uh, and DUP uh, back, uh, clearly the, the symbolic and totemic uh, issue is that of the backstop. Uh, that was uh, much discussed again yesterday, as it has been for a long time. If Theresa May were to say that she could get a limited, a time-limited backstop or some means for the UK to unilaterally stop applying the backstop, then that would provide a path for a lot of her critics in the party to come round to her point of view. And uh, that would be a, a very clear way for her to try to uh, get back to another vote uh, and to secure uh, their approval. The problem is 
obvious, which is that that is exactly what Theresa May has tried to do throughout the entire history of the backstop arrangement. Uh, Ever since the first draft was uh, uh, put together back in uh, the uh, joint report in 2017, so that's what, that's uh, 14 months ago, 13 months ago, 14 months. Uh, It's not that the government hasn't tried, it's that the EU resolutely will not accept uh, that kind of limitation on the backstop because that is still not how the backstop works. Um, So she could bring together support around limiting the backstop, but she won't be able to get that approved by the EU. And we had this slightly uh, analogous situation where there was talk of uh, voting on uh, the... uh, an amendment to the meaningful vote yesterday, which would have said that uh, it would have stopped applying after 2022, uh, and that the UK would decide that uh, there had been fundamental change in circumstances, and therefore under the Vienna Convention, uh, it wouldn't uh, be applying the withdrawal agreement anymore. Uh, that did not get voted on, uh, which was probably just as well, because even if it had, uh, it would have been in direct contravention of what the uh, withdrawal agreement said, and I would have struggled to see how the EU would have ratified uh, the text uh, in time for it to come into to effect at all. So the Tory strategy, the backstop limitation strategy, is going to get blocked at the European level. Now, what's not going to get blocked at the European level is the second gambit, which is to try and bring on board opposition MPs. And the past of that, and you've seen a lot of comment on it overnight, is softening Brexit. That if you had a commitment that actually we were going to change policy to stay in the customs union, to uh, stay in the single market, that then you could bring on board all of the soft Brexiters Uh, and maybe a bunch of the Remain MPs as well, to say, well, actually, things aren't going to be that different uh, down the line. Now, uh, that is entirely acceptable to the EU. They've always said that they're happy to adapt to changing UK positions. And uh, you would imagine that that's not that problematic. Uh, The problem will be twofold. One, uh, it still won't address the immediate needs in the withdrawal agreement, which still needs to be sorted out, and uh, there might be some hesitation about still agreeing uh, the backstop arrangement uh, as it uh, stands, because you wouldn't actually be, this would be future rather than straight away, so you'd still have to put in some transitional arrangements. But more importantly, it would go against what is it, the, the bedrock, the cornerstone of Theresa May's uh, policy. Uh, on how to pursue Brexit, which is about ending the free movement of people. And as you remember, because you've listened to this podcast for so long, uh, ending free movement means that you have to end free movement, uh, not just of people, but also goods, services and capital. And those four freedoms are the basis of the single market. So uh, you can't go back into the single market and stop free movement of people. And for a lot of people, uh, well, for Theresa May, that will be a problem because that is the one thing that she has been very determined about and that's what's driven a lot of her policy. And analogously, if you stay in the customs union, the whole issue around being able to uh, conclude your own trade agreements also becomes uh, an issue and uh, that will be a problem 
uh, too for uh, many in her party. So the chances that she would accept that kind of softening of policy to bring on board the opposition looks very small. And if nothing else, remember there's a lot of party politics about it. That's what yesterday was. It was about party politics. Uh, does number 10 want to look as though it's propped up by the opposition? Does the opposition want to look as though it's propping up number 10? So we've got problems on that side. Where we don't have problems is on limiting the backstop to bring in Tory rebels, but then that's going to be problematic to the EU. So this seemingly generous offer to open arms to Parliament for ideas and suggestions is not actually that uh, generous, because it's based on a calculation that the things that are acceptable to number 10 are, are not going to be acceptable to the EU, and vice versa, and therefore she can say, well, look, uh, I've given you a chance to come up with views, we've had some very constructive discussions, uh, but actually there's nothing that's got a majority in the House of Commons that also is acceptable to the government and is also acceptable to the EU. So uh, you had your chance, you expressed your view in the meaningful vote, but frankly, uh, your pathways are as blocked as my pathway is, and therefore, uh, we have run out of more time and we come back to the inevitable uh, discussion of what do we do now. And it, importantly here, the, the clock is a really big issue at this point. We are 70-odd days from uh, the 29th of March. That is very little time. Uh, this process is going to take at least a couple of weeks uh, more if it ends up going to the EU uh, for discussion and let's assume I'm doing air quotes about discussion because the discussion actually is going to be brief which will be no, we're not doing it so we end up maybe two, three weeks time uh, having had these discussions to discover that there isn't any difference in uh, where we are from where we are now uh, indeed, we could have done, if we had this vote back in December, we'd have had exactly the same situation, uh, exactly the same problems. There is uh, really no development uh, in the situation. Everyone is uh, holding fast and no, everyone's refusing to blink. But if we come back in three weeks with a situation where we've exhausted the consultation route, uh, we have uh, no change in leadership, no uh, success of motions of no confidence, then, well, what is the situation? Do we then come to Theresa May's my deal or no deal? Is that really where we are? Well, to a certain extent, yes, we do come to something that's much more like that because the pressure of time will be that much greater on the government uh, in uh, all of this. that Remember, it's not just the meaningful vote that has to be won, it's also that there is a piece of legislation that needs to embody the provisions of the uh, withdrawal agreement. There is half a dozen other, there are half a dozen other uh, pieces of legislation that need to be on the books anyway by the 29th of March. And that's even before we've got to the issue of uh, EU ratification, which is easily forgotten, but it's not going to be done in a moment. So, yes, you could argue that this strategy does have more success, but one of the 
semi-automatic consequences of this is that it makes the chances of a no-deal outcome more likely because there is less time to sort out an alternative to leaving without a deal. And I think here still, no deal is not going to be the preferred policy at any point. It is much more likely that no deal will happen by accident, that somebody is going to make a miscalculation and that that is going to just mean that somebody is unable to take the necessary corrective action uh, in the time frame that they have. So one of the things that's clear still is that the timeline holds for now, that the government says it absolutely won't ask for an extension. The EU, as much as we understand, is ready to have a discussion about that, but there has been no contact from the government even to, to lay the paper, you know, the groundwork of how they go about doing this. Uh, and it will take some days to uh, uh, get that all put through. So you should assume that you probably need at least a week to 10 days to uh, get an extension agreed uh, by everybody who needs to agree it. With all that in mind, your obvious question is, so what will happen? Uh, and my obvious reply is, I still don't know. Uh, I appreciate it's very frustrating. Uh, it's very frustrating for me uh, as, as well as for you that the uncertainty around this is just intense. That, again, for me, the problem remains that everyone in this looks weak. Nobody is able to impose themselves on anybody else, but everyone is strong enough that they can block action. So we have a lot of people who hold vetoes and nobody who holds uh, uh, a really strong position to smash through those vetoes. And because of that, everyone just is keeping on holding on because they all think, I think it's fair enough, they all think that they can get what they want because everyone else around them looks like they are not that strong. And if only we can push a bit harder, we can get what we want. The outcome of that is essentially one of stasis and blockage. Um, and that leads us to that no-deal outcome that is clearly not uh, desired by a large majority of those involved in the process. Um, and I think that this is a, a real risk uh, at this stage. Um, and I'm, I'm really not sure what happens. So if we want to summarise it, uh, last night was another exercise in kicking the can. It's about trying to close down the options so that the remaining options look more attractive, particularly the withdrawal agreements. For me, uh, the one gambit that hasn't been tried and seems to be worth trying at this stage is to point out that the withdrawal agreement is not about the future. It's about ending membership. And it's really very quiet, and that was also underlined uh, in the exchange of letters on Monday. It's very quiet about what the future relationship should look like. There's, for anyone who wants to leave the EU with a deal, the liabilities of ending membership are still going to be the same. And it's going to be the package that's in the withdrawal agreement at this stage, because there's no appetite to revisit those points around the backstop, around finances, around citizens' rights. But... If you frame it like that, then you could say, well, here we have a clearing of the decks 
and we can then have another argument and discussion and competition of ideas around what the next stage should be. So uh, that would be a way of bringing on the soft Brexiters, the Norwegians, the Canadians, the Ukrainians, the Swiss, the whatevers, their pluses and their minuses and 2.0s, because that's really still an option. But to engineer that in a, a clear way uh, is uh, seemingly very difficult, and uh, partly it's because it really assumes that then Theresa May has to step down uh, straight after the UK leaves on the withdrawal agreement terms and says, well, okay, you can now have uh, a leadership contest and you can use that as a proxy for deciding what policy should be. All of this is uncharted territory and, you know, that's a trite thing to say, but really nobody knows what comes next uh, and we're going to see some very difficult discussions in the coming weeks and at some point, frustratingly, we're going to come back to another one of these meaningful votes because the government will need to win this if it's to move forward uh, on this path. Uh, and we are going to have a lot of the same discussions again and again. On that cheery note, I'm going to... What am I going to do? I'm going to have a bit of a lie down, I think. You do the same, and we shall talk again soon. <laughs>